0: Welcome to another Eye for the Light, Newton & Co. podcast. I'm here today with my co-presenter, David Newton. David, hello.
1: Hi there, Chris. Good to be back. Uh, good to have another podcast recording underway. And today we have got... Goodness, I'm struggling with how to, uh, how to describe you. Um, I think I, I described you to someone the other day as a creative dynamo. Uh, and I'm probably <laughs> going to leave it as that. Uh, other than to say that your name is Elisa Yannakone, Thank you very much for joining us and in the next however long we'll discover some more about you. So Elisa, welcome and and thank you for being here with us today.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Uh, It's a a pleasure to have you on now. I met you, well I met you a few weeks ago at IBC, didn't I? And then we we had more time together at the photography show and uh, I was Uh, blown away by your work and that coming from me is not something that I, not many people get that compliment from me. So um, yes, I'm hugely impressed with what you do and I'm very keen to find out more about you. Uh, And I think, um, you know, I think you have, uh, from what I know already, an incredible story to tell, which I'm hoping will tease some strands out of um, that, that other people will find interesting as well. Before you
0: go any further, Lisa, could you just tell us how you pronounce your name?
2: David did it perfectly. Elisa Yanakone, and I was incredibly grateful because it never happened. So well done, David.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I had enough practice. Uh, Okay. Uh, So, well, we're going to start at the top. You you are a hybrid shooter. So a foot in both camps. You're not you're neither photographer nor videographer, but somewhere between the two. And you describe yourself as a documentary and photojournalist hybrid shooter. Can you maybe tell us a bit about what that means and you know give us an insight into into where that leads you?
2: Yeah, so I I actually find it hard to describe myself as well because I feel like everybody wants you to fit into a box and I'm a bit of the (laughs) anti-boxer. So in terms of background, I started in cinematography. I did some broadcast shooting. I started to go down the kind of drama route and then realized that I just desperately needed to see the world. And so shooting and traveling was the only interest that I had for about a decade, um, which led me to basically working in about uh, 50 countries until I ended up marrying my Airbnb host in Johannesburg and ended up back in London. So now I have a permanent closet with someone. Um, But what I did learn from the travels was that I was always drawn to human rights, maybe because I grew up in Mexico, um, and ended up discovering that sometimes it was very difficult to communicate those stories in a way that made general audiences able to either empathize or interested in the ideas, because there's so much bombardment of painful imagery coming out every single day that there's tons of compassion fatigue and it just felt like everyone was apathetic. Um so after shooting a bit in conflict areas and reporting from the Middle East, I decided to kind of stem more into what I would describe as magical realism, which is some strange form of conceptual art to address human rights issues but in a more creative way. So you could say that I am multimedia in the sense that I shoot stills and I also shoot um Film or video, um, and at the same time, I go back to challenging environments, humanitarian crises, to kind of keep current and keep learning about humans. But then also extrapolate from that to the realm of the imagination, which is where I feel like creativity can run loose. If that makes sense.
1: <laughs> okay, I mean, there's there's a lot in there, and 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 so many things to kind of unpick. And I'm going to take I'm going to take one strand to begin with and we're gonna we're gonna work our way down uh through through these multiple layers that you've laid out for us so first one, you've been to some pretty dangerous places you've worked in some pretty dangerous places um you've seen some no doubt pretty horrific things um question number one and it almost feels like it's a question that I wish in today's society we didn't have to ask, but as a woman, how did you find that process because we are, you know, this is a male dominated industry. How how did you find it as a woman? Did it open doors for you? Did you find it harder? Did you get places you otherwise couldn't have done? Um, you know, give us give us some of that.
2: Yeah, it was a combination of both. So in the Middle East, for example, I found that it First of all, I did have to be shooting with one eye on the camera and one eye around me, I would say, because particularly when I was covering in Egypt, and I think a lot of female um, journalists that have worked in Egypt have had cases of sexual violence um, happen to them. Unfortunately, at that time, you know, it was a society where gang rapes were happening all the time. And uh, a lot of sexual violence was ongoing. And so I feel that from that perspective, yeah, it was quite challenging. Um, equally though, there were lots of instances where I was able to go into women's groups. And, you know, I remember when the rabba protests were happening, there was a mosque that was created for women to kind of have a bit of a safe haven during the day where they could take their burkas off or their hijabs. And I got a chance to actually be there. And they taught me how to, you know, do my hijab properly. Obviously I was doing a bad job. And, um, I feel like I had a lot of kind of personal insights to areas that men would never have been allowed to get into. So it's, it's a twofold thing. Also as a woman, sometimes depending on the situation, you're perceived as less of a threat. So if you find yourself in a situation where they're like, okay, is this person reporting or are they just lost or whatever? You can play a little bit of the dumb blonde card, um, which I pull very often (laughs) and regularly um, to support me. So you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. It's, it's, it's great. And it's challenging.
1: Interesting. I mean, uh, kind of following on from this with, with your, with your storytelling, many people will have a foot in one camp or the other, you know, what, what does shooting both give you? Why do you shoot both in these environments?
2: Um, well, obviously I, I like the idea of shooting film because it's kind of, a longer ability to tell a story. It's like being able to actually really spend time with somebody from the documentary perspective, you know, have longer form interviews and and follow a story quite closely and kind of be able to tell it through the moving image. I think there's something very beautiful in movement. At the same time, the challenge of trying to tell a story with a single frame, I think is almost like a dare. It's like, can you actually say something um, that's more than just, passenger in this single frame and I think there's a power in just that um, but I think every story has its space depending on time depending on how you want to release it so which is why there are stories that I've told in documentary form and there are stories that I've torn that uh, told in holographic projections or still images so I think I try to curate for each thing that I'm doing the output and the impact that I want to have and then kind of work it backwards
1: Interesting. So for you, you know, we talked to a lot of photographers and they're about photography, or you talk to cinematographers or videographers, and they're about that. But for you, it's about the story, and then finding the right tool or yeah. vehicle to get yeah. that story out there.
2: Because it's visuals, right? To me, it's more about visuals. And it's sometimes a single frame can have that just impact in that moment. Um, And sometimes you actually want, you know, an immersive experience where people get to follow someone throughout and hear what their voice sounds like. And, you know, audio is also a very powerful part of things. So, yeah, curate.
1: (laughs) Interesting. Um, Now, oh, go on, Chris.
0: We'll we'll come to your images in a moment. Um, But you mentioned that you were born and raised in Mexico and you've lived all around the world. How have different cultures affected your approach to your art and your photography?
2: Oh, massively, massively, actually. Um, So even growing up in Mexico, I I grew up in a bit of a hybrid space because my dad's British Canadian. And so... Even when I was there, you know, just from a visual stance, I remember going sometimes to a market and people, because I'm lighter skinned, would start speaking to me in English and say, you know, dollars, dollars. And I was like, no, I'm Mexican, man. I live around the corner, you know? So I've always kind of been used to kind of straddling both sides of things. My parents didn't even speak the same language properly. So I often was translator for them. And I think having that kind of translator background since I was quite young allowed me to go to places where I really didn't understand the way that people were doing things, but wanted to understand it and wanted to find ways to translate it for other people to understand it. So I've always been a bit of a sponge when it comes to like culture, religion, traditions. Um, I want to understand the reasoning behind people's choices in doing this. And then when I take all those things and put them in my art, um, you know, sometimes I'll mix things from different cultures. I'll take magical realism from mexico which is something i grew up with and then i'll intermix it with a south african traditional kind of piece or something like this and try to mix that so i i definitely you know i I guess hybrid in most ways
1: (laughs) interesting now in terms of uh in terms of your photography chris said we're going to pick up some of your photography and we will Um, it was some of your magical realism your conceptual work that that really stopped me in my tracks it was you know i have so so many questions about it um how how did it come about and you know what what are you trying to achieve with it because you're dealing with quite challenging subjects at times and you know how does the magical realism kind of work with that and and your end goal as as to the story you're trying to tell
2: um so th- the way that it emerged was, uh, as I mentioned, I had obviously been traveling and doing a lot of work as a shooter. I unfortunately had a case of sexual violence happen with a family member when I was in Mexico in my early 20s. And I did therapy through the Canadian government, which is where I was living at the time. And they put me into art therapy. And that was something that I actually didn't know existed. And so when I started to understand how it worked, I just realized that sometimes words fail but you can still express yourself visually and you can still use other tools, whether it be music or um, you know, fabrics or collaging to kind of express the unexpressible, if you will. Um, and then listening to other people's stories in that environment that had gone through the same thing, I just kind of went, wow, there's like a huge amount of imagery that's coming out of this. Um, it's a shame that it's not like somewhere, right? And so eventually, after many years, I kind of came up with the idea of, I wonder what goes on in people's minds after they are sexually assaulted. I wonder what those images that stay with you that nobody else sees but you are like. And what would happen if I translate that, you know, once again, and and try to kind of put it out there in the way that it comes into your mind. And so I think that art therapy was really the core that helped me heal in my own personal journey. And so with the work that I do now, I also realize, you know, when we shoot something, I do ask the question, who am I shooting for? Because when I go into a conflict environment or a humanitarian crisis, you know, sometimes the images that get into the covers of magazines, I really question because I'm going, if I were that guy or if I were that woman, I would never be able to get this out of my head. How am I going to move on from what happened to me if this is the way that the world is going to know me for the rest of my life, right? And so it's immortalizing these moments of pain and trauma, right? that I question. And so by doing it in this way, you're actually collaborating with a survivor, trying to understand what they've been through and how they want to tell their own story. So you're putting power back where it belongs as opposed to taking power away twice, right? So I think in a long form winded answer to your question, I'm trying to find alternate ways of telling stories that allow audiences to become more empathetic and engaged, but also finding ways for survivors to tell stories that actually give back to them and doesn't and they don't just like take away from them. You know what I mean?
0: I find this really fascinating. On the day that I met you, um, first only a few weeks ago, I was listening to a radio interview um, by a woman who uses visual therapy to, for trauma patients, mm-hmm. and she identifies the, the the flashes, the traumatic flashes that come into their head, and then reconstructs that visually. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I met you and I saw your wonderful, positive images of of, from people who have really suffered and it really struck a chord with me.
2: Mm. Yeah, I I mean, I, I guess based on what you're saying, you know, we're often so used to seeing people who have been through pain captured in frames of pain. And I think that that's almost like detracting away from the fact that there are a whole human being behind there that have experienced this, but they have so much more. And so I did get the question often, like, why would you make sexual violence so beautiful? Or why would you make images that are so beautiful from such horrible things? And it's like, because why should I? You know, why should I not? Like, these people are beautiful. You know, we have stories to tell beyond these incidents. And our imagination is vast. And I'm not trying to, you know, capture a photojournalistic essay. I'm actually just trying to access another part of the brain and another part of the story, which is also there. So, yeah, anyways, my take on it.
1: (laughs) I mean, in, in terms of these conceptual works, how does it, you know, how does it come about? Where do you... I assume you spend a lot of time talking to your subjects and trying to access them and, and you know maybe walk us through that process how how do you where do you come up with the concept for each picture?
2: um yeah, so it's a complete collaboration, so all of these stories are all of these images are collaborative in nature, I will chat to someone that is perhaps interested in expressing themselves in this way. The way I came to them sometimes was particularly for the sexual violence project was through rape crisis centers, sometimes directly through psychologists that had clients that they thought might benefit from something like this. And then just having conversations and through the psychologists and, you know, a line of questioning, trying to assess, is somebody ready to do something like this? Would they benefit from doing something like this? Why do they want to do it? Um, and then once we established okay yes I'm ready I really want to do this it was about okay what stays with you the colors the textures the flavors the smells it's almost like going back to the triggers which I know is almost like the antithesis of what you're trying to do in therapy but um to me I find when you've been through a traumatic incident even though people tell you don't play it again in your head it's going to play in your head it's going to play it's it's cyclical in nature right and so by going there to what's playing again, that's where we started extrapolating things. And somebody might say things like, I felt like I was in a cage and it's as clear as, okay, a cage, what do we do with that? Um, I was really scared because there were people around it or you know, I was surrounded by immediate danger in my family because the abuse was in my family. How do we represent danger? How do we extrapolate from that? What geography are they in? In that particular instance, she was in South Africa. So it's like, what are you scared of? Lions, I'm scared of lions, they're dangerous, okay pack of lines you can kind of make it look familial can we use that to represent a family can we you know have a slow shutter speed so that somebody um that says okay there was alcohol and I don't remember anyone's faces but just this feeling everything around me was like a circus immediately when the person says the word circus I'm seeing red I'm seeing that kind of um stylized kind of environment and a slow shutter speed because you can't see people's faces so It's kind of letting people tell me stories. And then I'd be drawing as they tell me the stories. And so I'd be kind of doing sketches and then I'd show them like, is this kind of what you're talking about? And they'd go like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Or they might go, no, actually not at all. I'm not really feeling it. So we keep talking, keep sketching things until we're both kind of happy with the sketch. And then obviously go into execution. And sometimes from sketch to execution, it's like perfect, identical. You nailed it. And then sometimes from sketch to execution, you're working with lions you're working underwater you're working in you know and things change a little bit but basically that's kind of the process of of creation
1: in dealing with these subjects these people you're i mean you kind of talked about it you're you are making them relive some of these traumatic uh events but you're also listening to these traumatic events having as you said been through some yourself how do you and we're way away from photography here, but how do you deal with that? Because you're taking somebody's pain Mm. and you're having to internalize it yourself as well Mm. with your own pain from the past. How does, you know, there's a real melting pot of trauma and pain (laughs) going on in there for you. How do you personally deal with that?
2: Um, So I think for me, it was actually incredibly healing Mainly because once again, and going back to like the process of art therapy, I think when something like this happened, you feel like only you lived it in this way and nobody could possibly understand. And then you realize, actually, this person feels like exactly how I feel. And they put it into better words than I could have. So I think it just by listening, there was a lot of empathy, almost like, yeah, I get that. I get that too. And and understanding like, The overall aftermath of trauma, no matter the culture, the religion, the geography, the gender, it's basically the same. Obviously, there are, you know, variables, but, you know, everybody feels shame. Everybody has to deal with a loss. Everybody has to deal with identity, with pain, like they're universal things. Right. So you kind of start to find these lines. I had a therapist. I mean, I I've had a therapist for many years, and I go back and forth as I need. <laughs> um, but but the process itself, I mean, this kind of work, I actually find it really healing, uh, you know. <laughs> it um yeah.
1: I mean, Is I guess you're. The, oh, no, Chris. Sorry, David. No, Is that true of
0: the people you're photographing as well? Do they find the process healing?
2: So what we've done now um, through the Open University, there's a. Uh, a researcher at the legal promen, Sophie Doherty, that reached out to me to try and kind of study the methodology a bit more. And so we went back to about 50% of the survivors of that particular project now. And the vast majority said quite big statements such as, um, you know, when I was when I was in that shoot, I feel like I went from victim to survivor. Or I feel like it shifted me forward more than um, most of the therapy that I tried to do. Or these kinds of, And, you know, to be clear, this is not therapy, right? I'm not a therapist. I'm just taking someone's story and finding a different way of telling it through the realm of the imagination. But I, I did find quite surprisingly that people had felt a much bigger kind of shift in their healing journey than I had expected. Cause I, I figured that by expressing something, yes, it might shift you, but I didn't expect it to be as big as what they were saying it to be. So in that sense, yeah, I, I, I believe it works. And, and it worked for me as well. Cause I did my own image too. And I'm a hundred percent certain that if I went back to all of the people that I've worked with now, including myself to make an image, it would never be the same one that you already did because you've moved from that place. You're in a different place, so I think it's very constructive.
1: I mean, you've you've talked in the past about uh, affecting change in the world, and you're clearly with this. You you are affecting change on individuals. Um, is you know, it's a it's a massive question, but what change? What what drives you to try and affect this change, I guess? Why, why are you so driven to tell these stories to bring this change about?
2: Um, gosh.
1: Yeah, it's a massive <laughs> question. Not,
2: I know. What drives me? I mean, I, I don't think that I have a really concrete answer. I like to be succinct, but I, I think it's just this general sense that you know we're all in the same boat right it doesn't matter where you are in the world we're all in the same boat I really see it that way having grown up in a culture that I find to be rather exclusive in the sense that you know Mexico is very Catholic Um, there are ways of doing things with religion you know women generally don't tend to leave home till you get married like there's there's a structure as to how things must be done right And there's uh, this, yes, I said before, you know, this culture of silence, you must not speak of these things. Um, I really struggle with that, uh, because I think it's, it's not the way there's no one way. And I think that by doing work like this, what you're doing is opening up lines of dialogue, and some people will agree, and some people will disagree, and that's okay, but it's it's creating avenues of communication between people that otherwise never would have, right? It's taking a man in the UK with, uh, you know, that might be an atheist, or might be very, very liberal in their behavior, and taking a conservative Muslim woman from India, right? So it's like, how do you build these in rows and kind of go actually same, same, but different, but same, same, you know what I mean? And and I think by doing that, I mean, the fractures in the world are just evident. Doesn't it scare you sometimes to look at where things are going with politics, with divisiveness, with the, the level of protest, with, you know, Nazi movements emerging again. It's kind of like, okay, we're, we're in a crisis here. I feel like if each person just does a little bit, and as you said, it's impacting one person at a time might work. Right. If we each do a little bit of this then I feel like that's what we need. Um and I just don't see how else I could live my life but doing just something. It's not really an answer as to why but
1: <laughs> but, but it is. It, I mean it, I guess it comes down to to you as a person and 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 your goals which are admirable in the extreme in in what you're trying to achieve. Um okay. So uh, to get to get a little bit more uh, we're going to come away from some of the theoretical and, and and metaphysical and if you will uh in terms of the like the actual physical process like you you sit down you sketch you interview you come up with a set idea how do you take that concept into reality that's, that's yes stick to some physical and, for a and
2: that's that's the, the the scary and exciting part right um I don't consider myself to be the most technical shooter in the history of mankind, but I certainly consider myself to be one of the most creative. And so the way that I work is I will dream the dream first and deal with the consequences later. So when somebody says to me, yes, there will be lions or when somebody says to me, we are going to dangle. If we've come to the conclusion that we're dangling 200 meters of fabric for a dress costume from the insides of a building. Right. Like that's what's going to happen. And then I just have to figure out the logistics. So for me, it becomes a bit of a research project. It's if I've never shot in that environment, if I've never dangled fabric at those levels, it's like going to the experts. Who do I have to you know, speak to to see how we do this safely? Like, do I need lion wranglers? Do I need right who's done it before? Reach out to them on social media, whatever, like any advice, any tips. And then it's execution. It's okay, yeah, right. We're going to dangle a 200-meter costume from this building. I need to get permissions from the building. I need to find the building. I need a location scout. I need to get a costume designer if I can't do it myself. In that case, I definitely couldn't do it myself. And then the logistics of, you know, gathering the right people and executing. So it's like, it's like any more like a film production in my mind, like getting the right team on board, finding the right equipment for it. You know, do we need to shoot inside of a cage, you know, like the lion uh, situation where I was placed in a cage. Can we actually shoot with the people there? Do we need to make a composite image? So I, I tried to put everything in front of the camera that is like real. So every prop is built, every, but in the case of the lion image, for example, we did have to do a composite because it turned out that the lions had attacked and killed a American tourist the week before. And so certainly we we could not actually have this person uh just a few centimeters away. <laughs> so yeah, every story is different but that's basically the process.
1: It's I mean it's intriguing as you were talking I was thinking this feels like your cinematography background, your film production knowledge yeah. is what comes into play here. You can you can access that information, that background knowledge to to turn your photographs as we're talking about your pictures right now into almost like a film set production. It is a, it's a full scale film production rather than just the turn up, point a camera, take a picture approach.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, if we're going to wrap a plane in tutu fabric, we need the tutu, but we need the very, very kind owner that's going to let us wrap it in tutu fabric. Mm.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, almost like actually the, the taking of the picture is just the final moment of
2: something that's gone
1: on massively beforehand
2: yes oh no is it over (laughs) maybe we should just keep shooting to make it feel like it's not over
0: (laughs) i think for those of you that are listening it's really important that you go and look at elisa's website and look at some of the imagery we're talking about we've obviously talked about things that are way beyond what most people are shooting. And I think once you see her pictures and see her work, you'll start to understand where she's coming from on this. Um, They're conceptually quite elaborate, but um, they're also shot in some really unusual and obscure locations. How do you find these places and get access to them?
2: Um, So, I guess I'll take an example as the one with the yellow dress, right? Which is uh, in South Africa. It's a building called Ponte. And I like this building because it's a perfect donut. Um, so if you can imagine a, a quite tall kind of skyscraper-esque building, um, 3,800 people live there now. I was trying to find, based on the discussions I've had with a survivor, an abyss. So she's standing at the edge of the abyss, which what feels to be this incredibly broken dress, Right. And so how do you contextualize an abyss? And so my first stop is obviously the internet, where I just start Googling abyss. You know, um, Where is there something high, tall, whatever? And little by little, I started entering that kind of urban environment in South Africa, where I was based at the time, and came across this building. And I'd seen it from the outside, just driving past a few times, but I didn't realize that it had some kind of balcony on the inside. And so I just went. I mean, I I just went to the building and, and, you know, asked to speak to the building manager and just went, you know, I want to do this. What do you think? And pitched him the idea, showed him my sketches, told him what it was about. Um, And then a couple of hours later, he'd called the owners in Europe, gotten a permission and got me a date. And of course, that's South Africa, right? Like Mexico, where I'm from. happen quite quickly people are quite like yeah sure do it whatever when you're shooting in other places like canada or the states or europe or australia or whatever it's you know it takes a bit more like permitting processes and locations and all that kind of stuff like you would for any shoot right like or any film shoot anyways um but yeah it's just a matter of going out there and, and not being scared of being turned down because that's the other thing i make it sound quite easy but God, there were moments where I thought there's no ways I'm going to finish this project. You know, you're trying to make a project about rape pre me too, like and people were like, no, why, why are we going to do this? There's no I had arts councils turn me down and say there's no need for a project of this nature right now. You know, uh, but then I also had magical things happen. Like when I was looking for a studio to drive a car into on minimal budget in London with wanting like 20, 30 extras to be in the background. And I ended up crying at some studios receptionist. Uh, kind of area just being like oh I'm never going to be able to do this they wanted like 1500 pounds for the day and it turned out that the manager of the studios happened to be sitting in the reception just for that hour because she needed something from that computer and she goes I'll give you a studio give me 100 pounds so it's like it's frustration and (laughs) anguish but it's just that kind of relentless, like, no, we will get this done somehow. And just when you think you're broken, something happens, and you're like, yes, we can keep going.
1: <laughs> Amazing. Now, uh, Chris is absolutely right. People need to go and look at your work. But I'm curious to know what's coming next. Uh, what you know? What are you working on now? What project is driving you forwards? You know, where where, where do we where do we see more of this conceptual magical realism? <laughs>
2: Okay, so so there's an exhibition of that project right now at Constitution Hill in South Africa, which has been going on since March. That same exhibition is going to be in Athens mid-October. So um yeah, like 14th to the 16th of October. And then I'm just I'm just still working. So I, I did some work with um children with chronic illness in hospitals. And so that project is growing at the moment. Uh, I exhibited at the Cape Town, was it, no, Joburg, Cape Town Art Fair, Joburg Art Fair, can't remember which one right now, um, but basically that that project is growing. I'm doing a campaign to raise awareness on uh, Ukraine uh, in this fashion as well, because I lived in Ukraine in 2019 and feel quite close to the country, um, and so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're all kind of ongoing ongoing projects that are exhibiting and growing as they go
1: the 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 children with chronic illness one just you know pick up on that How, what is this you know we've talked about uh. dealing with sexual violence now chronic illness <laughs>
2: So so it's the same. So basically, this method can apply to anything, right? It could apply to whether you've had a bad day at work. And we want to think about what that feels like and what colors those are and how that, you know, what that makes you feel basically in the end. And we can make an image of that. So this project was working with the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital, Uh, kids that spend basically more time at the hospital than they do being kids. And it's called Dreams of Childhood because they're dreaming of being children and they can't really be And it's about where their minds go when they're stuck on dialysis or waiting for an organ transplant. And, um, you know, really the hospital becomes more home than home does. And so once again, it was about children that dream of, floating away in helium balloons and being able to see the world, but can't or kids that just want to go to the Met Gala and be designers, but they feel like they're never going to be able to leave the hospital. Um, Kids that want a carnival to come to their hospital bed or want their bed to be a formula one car. And, and again, you know, it's, it's all about chatting to the kids. And in this particular instance, obviously having like a child psychologist who was the person that actually selected the children and, you know, ensured that they were, ready for something like this etc but um, that that methodology can be applied to anything that you want um, so yeah
1: interesting now there is a so we're going to wrap this up with a question that uh, we ask pretty much everybody that uh, Chris hates which is why he's grimacing uh, but he loves it at the same time uh, so if okay. you could. <laughs> If you could go back to the younger you mm-hmm. and give yourself one piece of advice uh, that you think would stand you in good stead for your career or for life or, or, or whatever it might be, what, what would that be? <sighs> <laughs>
2: um, I guess for me specifically, it would have been you're much more in control than you think. Because I think when I was quite young, I was a very sickly kid. And so I was sick, you know, two weeks out of every month I spent at home for the first 16 years of my life. And so for me, I felt like I was always running a battle against my body. And it was never going to allow me to do the things that I wanted to do. And the dreams that I had were always going to collapse on me. Um, And I think I would have just told myself that, you know, I I would find a way to to heal both like uh, physically and psychologically and that it's going to be okay (laughs) in that sense. Um, And also to to just continue seeking knowledge, you know, to not be scared of coming across stupid or, you know, coming across insecure or whatever, because in the end, until you have that knowledge, you're not going to be secure. So I'm a perpetual student. I think I will continue to be for the rest of my life. And I think that that's what I would have told myself then and now.
0: (laughs) Amazing! This has been really interesting, Elisa. It's not an area of photography I particularly gravitate to. But since I met you and hearing you talk today, I found um, what you're doing really quite inspiring. And I think also um part of that is the energy that you exude, the 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 sheer excitement and positivity, regardless of what you're dealing with and what you're photographing. So I'd like to thank you for
1: sharing that.
2: Yeah, oh, thank you so much. I think the energy is from the Mexicanness, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean,
1: I I I would echo what Chris said, you know, before I, I think before I came across your work, it was it was an area of photography that i was not especially familiar with and so it's incredibly eye-opening and intriguing and interesting and inspiring to to meet someone who is doing it but not just doing it but doing it incredibly well and who is so vocally passionate about what they do um i mean inspiration is probably the the only word I can come up with. I said creative dynamo. I'm gonna have to upgrade that to inspirational creative dynamo. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's gonna be my new introduction for you or outroduction as we're wrapping this up. So thank you very much for sharing well, some of your story and, and your work with us. Uh, and we uh, wish you all the best. Thank you, in, in... Thank you
2: for having me. <laughs> and thank you for the very kind words and, and for taking the time to to show my work. You know, I really appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. And we'll we'll certainly be keeping our eye on what you do. And I hope we've inspired a few other people to check in and check out exactly what you're up to, both now and in the future. Thank you.